and the rest of us, if we have our Bibles, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. We are walking through the book of Hebrews. Been through the first chap- seven chapters, and that's why we're in chapter 8 today. Maybe eight, nine more weeks, 12, 15, 22 weeks left in Hebrews. And if you're visiting, if you haven't been here, as we've walked, we, um, like I said, we walk through books of the Bible straight through. In the context of Hebrews, he's writing to Hebrew Christians, professing Hebrew Christians who were being tempted to turn back to Judaism. And the main thesis of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. Hold fast to Jesus. He's better. In the midst of the uh, Hebrew Christians being persecuted and suffering and going through trials and all of those things, he's saying, don't go back to old religion. Don't go back to works righteousness. Don't go back to the ways of the law and the temple and the sacrifices and all of those things, for Jesus has fulfilled them all. If you were here last week, also I want to say if, if you want, now is a great time. If you haven't been coming on Wednesday night to start coming, we're about to start Zechariah. We just finished Esther on Wednesday night, so there's a plug for Wednesday night. Kids ministry, that's their big night. Youth have gospel groups, so there's something for everybody on Wednesday night. Last week, we went through Hebrews chapter 7. And it was very detailed, very dense argument. It was a hard text to kind of slug through. But the main point of that text was that Jesus is our high priest, our perfect high priest. Strange language for us, especially if you've grown up as uh, uh, evangelical Christian, you know that we don't go to God through any other person. We don't need a human being, either dead or alive, to uh, intercede for us or to. We, in Christ, who is God and man, we go straight through the throne of grace ourselves. We are accepted by God. And so we don't need, we think, a priest. But yet we have seen as we walk through Hebrews that, oh yes, every sinner needs a priest. Our priest is Jesus Christ, the righteous, both God and man. He represents believers, those who've trusted in him perfectly before the Father by the blood of his sacrifice. Not animals and bulls and goats and those things, but his own sacrifice that he gave on the cross. In Christ, we can approach the throne of grace boldly, it says in Hebrews, knowing that because of his death, his burial, his resurrection by grace through faith we're united to him and our sin debt has been completely paid now in chapter 8 9 and 10 he's going to give us the writer of hebrews is going to give us this uh, intricate details as it were of the ministry that jesus accomplishes as our high priest the first six verses of chapter 8, the writer is going to summarize basically his whole argument about Jesus' priesthood that began way back in chapter 4. Now we're going to read verses 1 through 13, but we're only going to deal with verses 1 through 6 this morning and then 7 through 13 next week. You with me? Okay, I hope you have your Bible in front of you because I'm going to be putting a lot of different stuff on the screen and you'll need that text in front of you. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. So let's read it together. It says... Now the point in what we're saying, he's summarizing the argument of chapter 7. The point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, the way he described it in chapter 7. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister, some of your translations may say a servant, in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest, meaning Jesus, also to have something to offer. 
Now, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Verse six says this, but as it is, now is the word, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now we're going to stop there today in our exposition, but I want to read the rest because he describes this covenant of better promises. For if that first covenant, meaning the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second for he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is a big long quote from from Jeremiah 31, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And here's the new covenant built on better promises. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. What a better promise for sure. Verse 13 said, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, there's a whole lot in there, you know, so you might have gotten lost in the details. Just hang with me. We're only going to do the first six verses today and then the rest of it next week. But let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we do thank you. We love you for your word and for who you are and for what you have done. God, we pray that you would be with us today and that you would just bring clarity to your word. Uh, there's so much here. It's easy for us to get lost in the details or be distracted. I pray that you would, your spirit would come and that you would apply these truths to our lives today and that you would show us what you would have us to know. And we thank and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the first thing I want you to see as we look at this is that our high priest reigns forever. Now, if you've been here for the last two or three weeks, you might say, well, we've already talked about this. You know, we've, we've spent the last, for sure, two weeks, but longer than that, really, talking about Jesus as our high priest. Jesus who intercedes for us. He is a mediator for us, a savior for us. Stands before the judgment bar of God, perfect, representing us who are not perfect before God. We, we've talked about that. We know about that. I mean, I thought about that this week as I studied the text and prepared for today. But, but Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, we can't think that way. As believers and followers of Jesus Christ gathered before the word of God on the Lord's day, we must do more than simply understand that Jesus is our high priest and that he ministers for us through the gospel, through his death and resurrection. These are not just truths for us to learn. They're not just theological reflections for us to study and say, oh, I understand. They're not mundane, repetitive doctrines to be learned. This is your whole life. This is your whole identity. This is the gospel. 
That Jesus is your high priest, that he paid the debt that you owe and offers his life as a sacrifice on your behalf and stands interceding for you even today before the Father. This is the gospel. This is everything. Hebrews belabors this point. He says it over and over in the last chapter, in chapter 4, in chapter 5. We've talked about Jesus as our priest many, many, many times. He belabors the point because you must base your whole eternity on this fact that he died for your sin that he rose from the grave that he's interceding before the father for you right now because of your faith in him and by the grace of god the writer of hebrews is not calling the hebrew readers who are suffering persecution and being tempted to turn back to judaism he's not calling them just to know that their high priest stands in heaven interceding for them he's calling them to trust it to give themselves to Christ with absolute confidence that Jesus and his priestly work is sufficient and nothing more is needed. Nothing, no one else can save to the uttermost, as it says in 725. So don't just learn this truth with me today. Let's depend on it. Let's put all of our hope in our high priest and find our peace with God here in him, in Jesus, as our priest, as our mediator, as our sacrifice, as our intercessor. Jesus' ministry as our high priest, it should spur our hearts to worship and to give thanks to God that he would do this for me, that he would stand in for a sinner such as I. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done should draw our hearts to repentance. And as we see our unworthiness, our our sinfulness more and more clearly. Because he loved me. Because he loved you. For no other reason than because he chose to. Send his son to die on a cross. Christ's priestly ministry should cause our souls to soar. As we glorify Jesus. So as we look at this text, let's look at it with new eyes and hearts of faith that rejoice and trust and depend on our high priest. And the first thing he shows us in the first verse of chapter 8 is that our high priest is a priest and a king. He's a priest who reigns forever. Verse 1 really just sums up the whole argument. He says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, meaning the kind that I've described all through chapter 7. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's the point that the writer's been proving from really the beginning of the book. We have a priest. We have a high priest who is also king, seated at the right hand of the throne in heaven. Jesus Christ, God and man, is the exalted king of all. And he is your high priest, representing his people before God. As king of kings, seated on the throne, our savior, our mediator, our co-heir reigns. And no other power, no other ruler, no other authority can conquer him. That's the point the writer's been making since chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 3, he said, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Look at this. After making purifications for sins, priest... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, king. Before Jesus ascended into heaven in Matthew chapter 28, 
He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he ascended into heaven as God and man fulfilling the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days. He ascended to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him, to one like a son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed jesus is our king he's seated on the throne upholding the universe by the word of his power he reigns over all as god and man and jesus sits enthroned as our king but it's also important to see that he's also our priest Jesus did what no other Old Testament priest in the history of God's economy has ever done. In verse 1, we have such a priest, one who is seated. He sat down in the Father's presence because the work is finished. The Old Testament priests working in the earthly tabernacle, they never sat down. During their appointed times of ministry in the tabernacle, they, they worked continually. They were offering sacrifices for the people day in, day out, all day, every day. People would stream in and stream out, bringing their sacrifices all day. It would happen. Those sacrifices never ended. If you read through God's instructions for building the tabernacle and the furnishings, what you won't find there are any chairs in the holy place. There were no seats in there because the priest's work was never done. There was never a time when he sat down. But when this priest entered into the true tabernacle in heaven, he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for your sin. And he sat down because the work is finished for all time. He introduces this concept in verse 1, but he makes it more explicit in chapter 10. He says, every, high, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Look at it. Here's the reason why. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Listen, that Jesus is both our perfect king and perfect priest representing us before the Father, that's not just a neat theological truth that we should investigate and we should make sure we understand. Notice how the writer phrases verse 1. He says, this is the point. We have such a high priest. He doesn't just say, hey, Hebrews, you guys that are tempted to go back to Judaism and make your life better and end all this persecution and stuff. He doesn't say, hey, a king and a priest really does exist. No, he says, we have him. He is ours. Jesus is our possession. And we are his. He is our priest. We have a priest. The author is calling his readers not just to understand this fact, but to depend on it. They were tempted to go back to the old Levitical priest, the Old Testament priest. He says, whoa, whoa, we have a priest. We have a high priest who is also a king, and he is sufficient. 
The Hebrews to whom he's writing, they were watching from the sidelines as their families and their friends, their Jewish families, their Jewish friends, were, they, were, they were going in and out of the temple day after day. They were going to the priests and having them offer animal sacrifices as they'd always done for thousands and thousands of years. They, they felt like coming to Jesus and now not going into the temple, not going to the priests, not offering the sacrifices anymore and being persecuted because they weren't, they felt like they no longer had a priest, a sacrifice, a temple, and they were being persecuted. The writer's saying, no, you have the reality of all of the earthly priests and the sacrifices and the temple. They all point to Jesus. Don't go back to the copy when the real thing is already your possession. We have such a high priest. You today have such a high priest. Jesus' reign and his intercession is an exalted reality that should cause our hearts to leap in faith and joy that the perfect reality of all of salvation history has come and we have him. Not only do we have such a high priest, but even today, believer, we have a tabernacle as well. Our high priest ministers in the true tabernacle. I want to take verse 2 and verse 4 and 5 together. Don't worry, I'm not skipping verses. We're going to come back to verse 3. In verse 2, he says, This high priest who sat down on the throne is also a minister or a servant in the holy places in the true tent, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. Our priest ministers on our behalf by grace through faith, in the true tabernacle, which is in heaven. And in verse 4, he says this. Now, if he, Jesus, our high priest, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Earlier in Hebrews, the author explained, the law of Moses said only men from the tribe of Levi could be priests in the tabernacle, in the temple. And Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. So you're correct. If Jesus were still on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all because there are already Levitical priests, Levites who are going in and out of the temple all day long doing their sacrifices. But as we've seen in chapter 7, Jesus is a priest from a different order than they. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priest and king. If you want to know more about Melchizedek, I ain't going into it now. Go back and listen to chapter 7. We did a whole bunch on Melchizedek. And then in verse 5, he says this. They, the Levite priests, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And he proves that by saying this, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Jesus is our priest today in the heavenly Tabernacle, the heavenly holy of holies. God instructed Moses to build the earthly tabernacle, but the earthly tabernacle and the temple at this point in time is just a copy and a shadow of the real tabernacle that is in heaven. They're earthly representations instructed to be built by God of the heavenly throne room of God. And how does the author know this? He's exegeting the scripture. He quotes Exodus 25, 40. 
See that when God told Moses on the mountain, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. That's Exodus 25, 40. God gave Moses the detailed instructions of how to build the tabernacle. They were patterned from the reality that exists in heaven. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern that was the word translated patterns where we get our word type from. The earthly tabernacle is a type, a copy of the real one. That's why God was so incredibly specific in the details, the shape, the length, the materials, the furniture, even the colors and the decor of the tabernacle. We got done reading through, uh, studying through Exodus on Wednesday nights, and man, that's some hard reading, the last half of Exodus, going through all that stuff in the tabernacle. But it was for a purpose. God gave Moses the specifics so that the tabernacle would be an earthly picture of the original in heaven. Later in Hebrews, the writer is going to make this point more explicit as well. In Hebrews 9.24, he says this, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Look at it on our behalf. The writer's telling these Hebrews who had grown up going to the temple and presenting their prayers and their sacrifices and their offerings before God, And now their whole way of life had changed because Jesus had come and they had professed faith and they were being persecuted and suffering and they were looking back to the way life used to be and they're saying, well, can't we just go back and serve God the way that we did? He's telling them, listen, you have not forsaken the temple of God. You have a tabernacle. You have the real tabernacle that the copy and the pattern that you want to go back to is pointing to. Today, that truth holds true for you too, even though you're a Gentile. I mean, I'm assuming you're a Gentile. Most of us are probably Gentiles. Do you know that today? You have a tabernacle. You have a true tent, a heavenly home, a place prepared for you in the presence of God. We see a glimpse of the real heavenly tabernacle described for us in Revelation chapter 4. After the Lord tells John, come up here, in verse 2 of chapter 4, he says this. This is John speaking. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. It's the throne room of God. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. It's the same vision Ezekiel saw in chapter 1 of Ezekiel. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Lots of people interpret the 24 elders a lot of different ways. But from the Old Testament perspective, the meaning is really clear. They're priests. In 1 Chronicles 24, 7 through 19, David is preparing for the temple to be built. And he's getting all this stuff together. And he organized the priests in preparation to serve in the temple. And there were 24 courses of priests, 24 groups of priests, 24 groups of singers that would minister in the temple. In Revelation 5, 8, these 24 elders present burnt incense before God, which is the duty of the priest in the Old Testament. Here in Revelation, these priests are also kings. They sit on thrones, they wear crowns on their heads. Jesus said, I will make you kings and priests to your God. And then he goes on to say, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven torches of fire? Anybody? 
The seven branch lampstand in the, temp, in the tabernacle, the menorah that was there. And before the throne, there was, it were, as it were, a sea of glass. In between the holy place and the altar in the tabernacle, there was a big, huge bronze basin called the brass laver, where it's often called the sea in Jewish writings, where the priests would wash back and forth. And then on each side of the throne, around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. I'm not going to go into all that. This is not a study on Revelation. Stop it. But if you keep reading in Revelation 4, the four living creatures are described exactly like the cherubim of Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. They have four faces and they're full of eyes and all those things. Revelation 4.8 says these living creatures cry, holy, 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 like the angels in Isaiah 6. They're, they're cherubim. God instructed that cherubim be embroidered all over the tabernacle curtains and walls and everywhere. And two cherubim sat on the mercy seat in the earthly tabernacle. In Revelation 4, John is called up to the true tabernacle that is in heaven. That's our holy place. That's our tabernacle where Christ is bringing us. And in Revelation 21, that true holy place, the new Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven and all creation will be the holy, the holy of holies where God will dwell with his people. And we will need no temple there because the entire creation will be. Boy, we look forward to that day. But the writer of Hebrews is showing his readers that right now, even in the middle of your suffering and your trial and your persecution and all of the things that you're going through, you can enter, draw near to the throne of grace, that true tabernacle with your priest representing you. Ephesians 2.6 says that we are right now seated with Christ in heavenly places because our priest has opened the way. In Hebrews 10, we'll get there in, in a couple years, it says... Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence right now to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence right now to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through the veil, through what separated the holy of holies to the, from the holy place. That is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest or a great priest over the house of God, this is what he wants us to do because we know this, because we've heard that we have a high priest, we have a tabernacle, we have a holy place, we come before God. He says in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Both of those things were cleansing rituals in the Old Testament. We are able right now to draw near. Why? Because our priest offers a perfect sacrifice. If you have chapter 8 in front of you, back up one verse to verse 3. He says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts, plural, and sacrifices, plural. Thus it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, also to have something singular, in the Greek text, to offer. We're reminded of a fact that we already know, but one that the writer is going to more fully explain in chapter 10, the function of the priest to represent the people before God with sacrifice and offering. That's why the earthly high priest was appointed once a year to go into the tabernacle on the day of atonement and bring in his offering, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to offer his sacrifice for the people. 
And so the perfect high priest, this priest, to whom all the others point, must also have something to offer. And I hope you know what he offered by now, surely. They offer many sacrifices, many gifts. He offered but one. Four verses earlier in chapter 7, verse 27, we're told he offered himself. This priest didn't enter into the holy place with the blood of another. He gave himself as the sacrifice, the blood atonement that washes away sin. In the next chapter, he's going to say this. He entered once for all. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing, look what he gave us, eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We have an eternal redemption because our priest has gone before us, a perfect priest making perfect sacrifice in the real holy of holies, the real tabernacle to which we are headed because of him. We have this eternal redemption. He's our mediator. And we have this eternal redemption because he is not just any mediator, but a mediator of a better covenant made from better promises. Verse 6 says, but as it is, text actually says now. So if your translation says now, it's correct. Now, Christ, past tense, has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent, meaning more excellent than the Levitical priest that you guys want to go back to, than the old as the covenant because the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. In the next section, we're going to talk a lot about the new covenant. That's verses 7 through 13. We read that earlier. So we're going to save the examination of 7 through 13 for next week. But the snapshot of it is this. The new covenant he's talking about, that is Christianity. The new covenant is the gospel. The new covenant is the only way that humanity, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, old, young, anyone can come into right relationship with God. And this covenant can never fail. It can never be broken because it's based on better promises. Stay with me just one more second. I mean, it's a lot more seconds, but I just use that because it's... God promised that he, in, in, in the old covenant... Uh, Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai. That covenant was faulty. It said so in verse 7. If he would have found this covenant faultless. There was a fault to it. God promised that he would be their God and bless them with his presence. And their part of the covenant was to obey his laws, not just outwardly, but from the heart. A heart that loved God with all that it was. But their fallen hearts would not do it and could not do it. So the fault in the covenant was not with God or his law. It was with sinful human beings. We'll see that next week as we dive into that text. So the promise of the Mosaic covenant was obey me and I will be in relationship with you forever. The new covenant promise 
is that God himself, we read it earlier, will transform your heart and write his law on your heart rather than on tablets made of stone. And God will do this work in you so that his people are transformed to obey his word from the heart as we walk in the spirit. Are you with me? There's a whole lot more excited than y'all look like. God himself, he said, I will do these things. All those things we read earlier in, in verses 7 through 13. All of it. I will. I will make the covenant with them. I will put my spirit in them. I will write my love. It's all a work of God. It's all built on better promises and a covenant that cannot be broken because the fault of the old covenant, our fallen hearts, our sinful nature is taken out of the equation. And we're made new. The, because the sacrifice that Jesus gave that justifies us before God and, and brings the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, making us new creatures, saved by the blood of Christ, transformed and being sanctified with new hearts. Because of that, the quintessential promise of the new covenant is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus, which is in verse 12 we read earlier. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Can you think of a better promise than that? If you're a sinner and recognize your sin, that's the greatest news ever. Because you can't make up for your sin. And neither can I. Doing a good deed doesn't, doesn't wash away sin. It's still there on your account. We need it expunged. And the only way that happens is if the father pours out his wrath upon his own son. Pours out the punishment for sin upon his own son in my place. In your place. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 3 it says the blood of all the animals that were brought they could never take away sin permanently and perfectly. It says they, those, those sacrifices were a continual reminder of sin. They were never done. As soon as you offered a bull for your sin and walked out of the tabernacle you knew I'll be back. I'll be back with another bull. I'll be back with another goat. It's not done. It's not finished. It's not perfect. But this is the promise of the new covenant mediated through Jesus. God said, I will remember their sin no more. It is done. It is finished. And that promise has come to pass fully and completely in your life in Jesus Christ. Oh, don't just learn the facts about Jesus as our high priest. Rejoice in them. Put your faith and your hope in them. Let the gospel reality of who Jesus is, where Jesus is, what Jesus has done and is doing for you, and where he is bringing us, let that well up into a fountain of joy within you. It is finished. In the new covenant, you can add nothing to your standing in Christ. It doesn't matter when you leave how great you do or how wonderful you live or how religiously filled with activities your life is. You add nothing to the fulfillment of this covenant. Jesus paid it all. And sinner, 
who believes in Christ, united with Christ, been born again, struggling. Understanding that you're not holy. Seeing your flaws and your faults as the Spirit of God convicts you. You can't take anything away from what he's done either. You're righteous in Christ. Listen, that the Lord of glory would do this for me. And my heart's just as black as anybody else's. That he would do this for you. That he would give his son, that Jesus would willingly lay down his life. That should cause our hearts to well with joy and love, but also to draw us to repentance of sin, of conviction, that I would choose to live in what he paid for, what he died for, what he needed to save me from. This matters. Jesus as our high priest and sacrifice matters in how we live and how we think and who we are. If you are part of the new covenant, God has transformed your heart. I just read it to you. Read it again. Verse 10 through 11. I don't know exactly which the verse numbers are. I will write my law on their hearts. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26 says, I will take out their heart of stone. I will put in a heart of flesh. I will cause them to keep my commandments. It's a work of God. You've been transformed. So every believer in here, no matter if you're doing great or if you're not doing so great, if you're struggling hard, no matter where your level of righteousness is or how great you're living or how, how closely you're following or how great of a disciple of Jesus you are, every believer in here has been transformed by the Spirit of God, has a new heart that desires Jesus Christ, desires to obey Christ, to follow Christ, to walk with Christ. Every single one. If you are a born-again believer and you do not have a heart that desires to obey Christ, to follow Christ, to live for Christ, to love Christ, either you are lost or God is a liar. Now, I'm not saying you're doing great. I'm not saying that you're doing all. I'm talking about your what your heart desires. That's what I'm talking about. You may be struggling hard with sin and fighting against it as the spirit wars against the flesh. You may be failing a lot in your battle against sin, but you have a new heart born of the spirit if you've been born of God. Salvation is not just a contract to be agreed upon. It's a promise of the holy God to transform the heart and life of sinners and draw them to himself. And it's a work that God does. Do you know him today? Listen, there is no greater, I don't really even know how to phrase it. There's no greater joy, no greater marvel, wonder, incomprehensible truth than the fact that by grace through faith, in the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have such a high priest. Don't ever get past it. 
Don't ever get used to it. It should cause you to marvel and wonder and just be inexplicably in awe of the fact that God would do such for me. Make you blameless and perfect in his sight because his son paid the price. That is salvation and you can add nothing to that. It is finished. And in the new covenant, God promises the evidence that that has happened in your life is that God has written his law on your heart. God has put his spirit inside of you and you are a new creature. Is that you? If it's not, you must trust in Jesus today. The evidence that you've been born again is not that you prayed a prayer or that you walked down an aisle. The evidence that you have been born again is that, listen close here, your heart desires Jesus. Does your heart desire Jesus? That's God's promise in the new covenant. I will write my law upon their heart. Examine yourself today. Do you have such a high priest? You can come to him. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Trust in him. Give him your heart. And believer, let's walk in the glory that we have in Jesus Christ. He's sufficient. And he's paid it all. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the sacrifice and the priest and the tabernacle and the the truth, the reality that all the copies and the shadows of the Old Testament pointed to. I thank you that we have such a high priest who has secured our place in heaven, in the new creation to come. And by the gospel promise of the new covenant, we will live forever. Without sin, without suffering, without trial, without the effects of the fall in this world, and with all of those that have gone before us in Jesus, God, what a day that will be. Thank you, God, that you also say that we can draw near right now with a conscience sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. Help us to walk in that truth. Help us to be people who are repentant when our sin is brought forth in our hearts and convicted by the Holy Spirit. Help us to be people who are worshipers because of who you are and what you've done for us. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that hasn't trusted in you, God, I pray that you would cause them to be born again. I pray that they would call upon your name, that they would trust in you, that you gave your son to die on their behalf. Your son stands in heaven interceding on their behalf, and they would claim it as their own by faith in the grace that you have given. God, do business with our hearts today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, I'll stand right down here at the front. I'd love if you want to come pray and make a profession of faith, however however you need to do it. You do business with God today. Will you stand with me?